No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. Hello, and welcome to Know You Tell It, a hybrid story incubator slash performance series. Each Know You Tell It participant develops their own nonfiction piece on the page, then switches with a partner to perform each other's work on stage, because nothing informs your story like hearing someone else perform your story. First up, from our wild card show, in Roger Nasser's story, a young man's obsessive quest to complete a set of Batman trading cards embroils his extended family in a hunt across the borough of Queens. Here is Raquel Pinzo reading The Elusive Card, number 66. The Elusive Card, number 66. The summer of 1989 was an eventful one for me. Aside from it being the summer of my first job, working as an usher at the United Artists Historia Sixplex, it was also a summer full of family celebrations. In July, my grandparents celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary with a big party that brought family from all over, people I had only ever heard of. In August, my oldest brother Pierre got married. Then my sister Nicole got married Labor Day weekend. But in June, something even greater happened to set the standard for how great the summer was going to be. Tim Burton's Batman opened in theaters. <laughs> it was probably the first movie that I was really excited about seeing. I bought the soundtrack on cassette and pretty much knew every word to Bat Dance by Prince. The song was a hit before the movie came out. I planned an outing with friends from the drama club at school to go see it opening day, but it was sold out. Ironically, the girl working the box office, who gave me the awful news that the showing was sold out, would become one of my best friends at the theater after I started working there. I eventually saw the movie that weekend and absolutely loved it. More than loved it, actually. I became manic. <laughs> I bought a Vicky Vale poster that would adorn my wall for the next few years. It didn't stop there. I bought a purple bolero hat from Wilson Leather that was very similar to the one that Jack Nicholson's Joker wears in the movie, a purchase that was out of character for me. I never really wore hats, and a purple bolero can come off as a bit garish. <laughs> and I was not garish, then. <laughs> but what I really went crazy about were the trading cards that were associated with the movie. I had collected cards before, garbage pail kids and baseball cards and stickers, not because I was into baseball, but my friends were, so then I was too. And I was an avid comic book reader, mostly Marvel. But there was something about Batman that made me cross the Marvel line solely because of the movie. I had a few Batman comics that Pierre had given me, but I was mostly into Batman because of the television show and the Super Friends. I started my collection by buying a few packs of the cards. There weren't any comic book stores in my neighborhood, so I would buy them at KB toy stores, a good source at the time for cards and such. But I bought most of them at the local newsstand by my house, the one that my grandmother broke her hip at, the one that my father bought lotto at, the one that I would eventually buy porn at when no one else was in the store. But I guess that's a story for another time. There were 132 cards in the collection and 22 stickers each pack with a stick of gum. I love that gum. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I was doing pretty well. I kept buying them and would spend a lot of time looking at the cards and putting them in their numeric order. Each card would depict a different scene from the movie and would have titles like, Will they get a load of me? Or, Vicky to the rescue. So I would get to relive my favorite parts of the movie by looking at the trading cards. And there were 11 cards that featured solo pictures of the main characters of the movie. I even got a few of the hard-to-come-by stickers that were a part of the collection. There's a certain point when collecting where you have to take a step back and decide if you're going to keep collecting to get the full set. It becomes a commitment, sometimes even a chore. I didn't collect the full set of Garbage Pail Kids. I didn't have the staying power at the time. But this was different. These weren't silly cards. The Garbage Pail Kids cards met an awful fate. I threw them away when I was cleaning my room once, against my better judgment, of course. But I guess that is a story for another time. As I started to get more and more cards, I noticed that I had amassed a lot. I even got a binder with the plastic sleeves and started placing them in order. Little by little, the sheets were filling up. Page after page was missing only a card or two. So I bought more cards. I was going to do this. I would open up the new packs of cards, eager to find out what the cards I was missing. Number 71, Alicia's new look. Got it. <laughs> Number 98, Sabotage, no longer missing. Number 61, Vicky's most devoted fan, mine. Things were going pretty well. Sure, I had a bunch of doubles, but I could always trade them or start another set. I would look through the binder, and I was pretty impressed with my almost complete collection. This was a summer full of family events and I would see my extended family almost every week. I was becoming obsessed with collecting the cards and I would talk about my card collection with my family, show them the binder of my impressive cards with pictures from the movie. The pages were filling up quickly with one major exception. Card number 66, let's go shopping. <laughs> no matter how many packs I bought, that card was never in them. And that empty card slot was taunting me. I had to find it. I had to. How did it get so bad? Why couldn't I find Let's Go Shopping? Why was card number 66 so hard to find? I probably had doubles of every other card but couldn't find this one. Was there even a card number 66? Or was this just some ploy to get everyone to keep buying them? What made this the wild card? I needed reinforcements, but this was 1989. There was no internet that I could look for it on, no eBay, no Amazon. There was no social media site that I could widen my search on. I couldn't update my friends about my status and ask for their help locating it. I couldn't tweet about the card I was missing. There was no hashtag card number 66. I don't even think we had call waiting yet. <laughs> So I used the one resource I did have a lot of, my family. They became my allies. I gave them the card number and title, and they were on the search with me. One of my aunts, Iglau, who lives in Smithtown, was hard on the search. She called with what I thought was the news I was hoping for. Raji, I found the card you were looking for, she said excited on the phone. Oh my god, you found card number 66? Where? That's great. Thank you so much. 
I replied in amazement. Oh, Raji, no. I found 65. I thought that was the one you needed. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay, well, thanks anyway. I'll keep looking, Raji. Don't worry. We'll find it, she said and hung up. This happened again. She would call and say she found it. She had the best of intention, but it was either 67 or 68. Not the elusive card number 66. It had become my Moby Dick, my fountain of youth, my Ark of the Covenant. The treasure that I would spend the rest of the summer trying to find until it became mine. I was a teenager obsessed with Batman movie trading cards. My hopes were dashed. I figured I would never find it, so I stopped buying the cards. I figured if it was meant to be, it would just appear. Sadly, this is still the way I handle things. <laughs> I would see the pack of cards at stores and just walk past them. But I got that feeling in my gut that I needed to buy just one more pack and I'll find it there. Like the way an alcoholic might say that this was their last drink. <laughs> and then it happened. I bought a pack knowing that it was going to be a pack of doubles. Then I looked through the cards. There it was. Let's go shopping. I finally got the card. I thought maybe I was dreaming, but nope. I really found it. The next day, I got a call from my Aunt Iglau. Raji, guess what? <laughs> what? In my head, I knew she was calling to tell me she found card number 70. I found the card you need. Card number 66. Let's go shopping. <laughs> Thanks so much. Where did you find it? One of my neighbors had it. Can you give them a card for it? Of course. Which one? Let me find out. She lived on a cul-de-sac that had a lot of families with kids, and one of those kids had an extra card number 66. She really came through. So did one of my cousins. And my sister's best friend. So now I had four Let's Go Shopping cards. And my set was complete, finally. I did have to give up some doubles to get them. And I know I didn't need four of them, but I had to keep them. I couldn't say no after these people made it their quest too. I didn't let them know I too found Let's Go Shopping because the fact that they had looked so hard for the card for me made it really special. It made me feel special. There was a second set of Batman movie trading cards that came out after the first set, but I couldn't start collecting them. I knew that my preoccupation with trading cards wasn't a healthy one. I obsessed too much about them. Sure, it could have been worse. It could have been drugs or other harmful agents or rap music or boys. These were just trading cards. I still have the cards, but I'm not sure exactly where they are right now. <laughs> They're still in a binder somewhere in my apartment. Looking back, I'm still trying to figure out why these cards meant so much at the time. I think it's because I needed something important to focus on while two of my siblings had greater things that summer. It was the summer that they were starting their new life with their wife and husband respectively. All I had were my cards. I've collected other cards since. X-Men cards, Star Trek The Next Generation cards, 
true crime cards, but not to the same extent of the Batman movie trading cards. Those trading cards helped make the summer of 1989 really great. That and the adventures I would have working at the United Artists Astoria Sixplex with Kristen, the girl working the box office that told me the show it was sold out. But that's a story for another time. Author Raquel Pinzo's mother once warned her that the second child is usually spirited because it has the potential to be a middle child. And with the birth of her feisty second daughter, it seems mom really does know best. Switching it up, here's Roger Nasser reading My Almost Jan Brady. My Almost Jan Brady. My mom once told me that the second-born child is usually spirited because it has the potential to be a middle child. And everyone knows the middle child is always riddled with trouble. I figured she was just making excuses for how poorly behaved my little sister Mari was. <laughs> After experiencing the excruciatingly painful and scary birth of my own second daughter, I started to think my mom was onto something. My little Naomi has proven to be every bit as spirited as my little sister. It all began roughly 14 years ago when I decided that with my firstborn Kayla turning five soon, and headed off to kindergarten, and my marriage on life support and needing a jolt of something, I'd ditch my birth control pills and give Kayla a sibling. Now mind you, I didn't even want one kid, but once I had my first <laughs> baby, I knew I'd have another in five years because one, only children just seemed wrong to me, and two, I read a study as an undergrad that claimed that siblings that were at least five years apart did better in school academically than those closer in age. By the way, so far, that study is right. <laughs> I went to the, my then husband and proclaimed, we're going to have another baby. I'm going to the OBGYN to see what I need to do. Which now seems silly, since I got pregnant the first time without any medical intervention. <laughs> I was pregnant within the first week of stopping my birth control pills. <laughs> Apparently, my reproductive system had been biting its time, just waiting for me to slip up more than ready to host another tiny human. During this time, I was living on a campus in college campus in Riverdale, working part-time at a senior center, and spending my entire paycheck on eBay and at Wilkins, hardly in a position to have another kid. But I was going to do it anyway because I was just that hard-headed. According to the study that I can't find anywhere now, it was now or never to give Kayla a little brother or sister. Even under these less than ideal circumstances, I was more excited about this baby. See, I also had an important void to fill. My grandmother, who was more like a mom to me, had just died three months prior to conception. And I was in such a downward spiral that, honestly, the only thing that kept me alive was knowing that another being lived off of me, and therefore, I needed to stay alive. In my dreams before the pregnancy, Grandma would visit me and make all this food. She never spoke, just went about her chores, and cooked heaps of food and fed me, like she was getting me ready for the baby. Like maybe she already knew the baby, and that this particular baby would need lots of food. <laughs> I never questioned. Naomi was due the same week that my husband, the director of residential life at a Jesuit college, was supposed to go away for RA training. However, he opted to stay home and let the RD handle it on his own. Smart move. 
because as soon as the bus pulled away with all of his new residents, and my husband came back to the apartment, I stepped out of the shower, began to towel off, and felt some weird leakage coming from down there. Funny side note, my first pregnancy's labor pains began after a shower, too. Something about showers triggers my uterus to contract. <laughs> after determining the fact that I wasn't in fact urinating on myself, I let out a cautious, um, I think my water just broke. He looked at me wide-eyed, as if I was insane, and yelled out, what? How? This was the marriage I was trying to save? <laughs> You'd think he'd be able to keep it together better, seeing as we'd already been through this once before. Still, here we were, me leaking into an old beach towel with Egyptian patterns I snagged from my mom's linen closet years ago, and my husband on a verge of a panic attack like many clumsy sitcom dads to be before him. Dude, I don't care, but something is leaking, and it's not. So I adjusted the towel between my legs while he called camp security to get transport to the hospital. By the time security came to get me, the leak had slowed down enough that I was able to get dressed without needing some dependent undergarments or the towel I had been using to catch all the wayward amniotic fluid. I was a little disappointed that there wasn't a huge gush or splash like in the <laughs> Isn't that how one's water usually breaks? With <laughs> my first pregnancy, my water didn't break until I was pushing Kayla out. And now the second time around, it was this slow IV drip. Already, I was bored with this baby. <laughs> it squished my bladder throughout the entire pregnancy, forced me to eat these vile salami and provolone sandwiches from a local deli, and got me so off balance that I once fell off of a bus. <laughs> but now, when it mattered, labor was starting like a damn lamb instead of a lion. We arrived at the hospital, and as calm and boring as can be, I let the triage nurse I was having a baby today, and would she be so kind as to call my doctor. I was sent to a curtained area, uh, to be inspected by a male nurse who looked fresh out of high school. And he decided that after testing the fluid I was leaking, no, I wasn't in labor and my water hadn't broken. He was sending me home. I gave my husband such a look, <laughs> then turned my attention to the poor baby nurse. I'm not going home. My water broke. Testing again. <laughs> I told him with the stankest of attitudes, so stank in fact that he got someone else to take care of me. <laughs> and lo and behold, this older, more seasoned nurse proclaimed what I already knew. My water had. If I hadn't been carrying those extra 25 pounds in my belly, I would have jumped out of the bed and yelled, IN YOUR FACE! <laughs> <laughs> but I gave him the side eye instead. He got me. <laughs> The next few hours were pretty crazy and full of fuckery. All thoughts of boring and calm were quickly thrown out the window. I longed for the days of my first delivery five years ago, when my only concern was the nurse who tried to break my water with what looked like a crocheting hook. Back then, I had a midwife and some of my college floor mates by my side. It hurt, yes, but it was a breeze that was over in a few hours. The good old days. <laughs> Fast forward back to the labor and delivery from Hades and my little almost Jan Brady. 
after already de uh, demanding special attention. My amniotic fluid was completely gone, but not yet fully dilated. Do you know what they do to women who run dry but aren't dilated? They give them a sadomasochistic drug called Pitocin that forces your cervix to dilate. Very painful. It was a pain like nothing I still never know. <laughs> not menstrual cramps, not hitting my head on the radiator as a kid, not throwing out my back last year. Nothing hurts like forced labor. Nothing. <laughs> and it went on for a good three to four hours. I was hell-bent on delivering naturally again, but this Pitocin was making it a really hard choice. <laughs> I was losing oxygen. I was crying. I think I might have swung my husband, swung on my husband a few times and cursed now, but no one would convince me to get an epidural. This devil baby would not win. Through <laughs> <laughs> all his faults, I have to say my husband had his moments. When all else failed, he went to the waiting room and sent my mom. <laughs> she came in and simply said, Raquel, what are you doing? Get the epidural. That was all it took. She left the room, and I cried. No one will think any less of you, my beautifully beautiful obituary said to me. I cried and cried, and finally agreed to let the anesthesiologist, who'd been on standby this whole time, bend me, unco bend me uncomfortably over my huge belly and give me the shot. All of a sudden, the world was beautiful again. <laughs> I had about 30 minutes of respite from the pain, where I could catch my breath, wipe my tears. I could remind myself that I was happy about this baby, that I planned this baby. <laughs> my world was bliss hmm. until it wasn't. Because, ouch, the epidural wore off, I told the nurse in the room. I need another one. <laughs> no, you don't, sweetie. It's time to push, she said with a stupid smile on her face. <laughs> no, uh I can feel it. I thought I wasn't supposed to feel it. Oh no, she explained a little too late. The epidural just relaxes you. You still feel it. <laughs> I looked at her as if she just shot my dog and wanted to yell, then what the fuck, lady? <laughs> However, there's no arguing with Mother Nature or obstetricians or crazy babies that demand to be born. It was time to push. But then it wasn't. You need to stop pushing for a moment, my doctor said. I because I was tired as fuck. But then she repeated, sweetie, I said stop pushing. To which I replied, I did stop. So why did my baby come out anyway? Because that child clawed her way out. <laughs> nice and good too, because it took way too long for the doctor to stop the bleeding. For a minute, I thought it was my final hour as I heard my doctor whisper to the nurse, I can't seem to stop the bleeding. It just won't clock. Of course she fixed me because I'm here to tell the tale. But that entire experience put me off babies for good. <laughs> I mean, really, what kind of Hellcat baby claws their way out of the birth canal to the point of killing you? The potential middle child, apparently. The kind that catches attitude with babysitters when it's not even a toddler yet. The kind that doesn't wait for you to get her fruit snacks from the cabinet, 
but instead, at 18 months, climbs up the kitchen counter to get them herself. The kind that undresses herself in her seat during a performance of The Lion King on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> the kind that ends up looking so much like Grandma and acting just like Mari that you just can't help but smile at her antics. I get it, Naomi. You want in and still do want my attention. Fine, then. Let's do this. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.